0: Nije, we're back, and we, uh, in our last episode, we're talking about um, the gospel for doubters. What does that look like to be um, a Christian who is struggling to believe and, at the same time, be living in God's grace in the midst of that uh, particular faith crisis? Um, we're going to talk a, a bit now about—we're going to transition and talk a little bit about the the gospel's effects, and that is— we tend to have a bit of what i have come to call a minimalist gospel um i think i borrowed this from my friend preston sprinkle it was someone at some point who used this phrase but the idea that we have created a very um a very you could say an overtly simplified vision of the gospel that we believe and go to heaven that's right. that's the sort of transaction and i th- i think that we need to do a little work to expand that a little bit, not because we want to, but actually, it just doesn't fit with what Scripture has to say. I, I love uh, one of the the ways that Luther talked about sin. Was he talked about sin kind of like an addiction? Yeah, that it's it's a it's a it's a it's something you yourself can't break yourself out of, right? Yeah. I mean, it's this classic idea among reform folks that you know Lazarus didn't just decide to wake up from his death. he needed somebody to break him out of his death cycle, liberation.: Absolutely. Yeah. We can't. There's a line in one of Bonhoeffer's Christmas uh, sermons that he gave from prison where he says that advent at the end of the day is the story of humans who can't unlock the, the cells themselves. They need somebody from the outside to do it. Uh, but that image of an, an, of an addiction. It actually really hits home for me Mm -hmm. uh, because it it becomes uh, the cycles of addiction that we don't have strength to break out of. When I read, for example, the book of Judges, it is this cycle of addiction. Uh, It is Israel giving themselves to idolatry, God sending a judge to rescue them, a hero, uh, and they are free for a while, and then there's peace in the land, and then once again they go back into the cycle of idolatry, and it's the same cycle over and over and over again. And you you finish, in my Old Testament class I always mention, you finish the book of Judges, and it's very unsatisfying right. because the cycle is never broken. You yeah. almost finish Judges anticipating there's got to be a better judge who's going to come that can break us out of this thing. And I, I, I think one could argue that Jesus becomes the answer to jud- the Judges – uh, cycle. We can't break out of the addiction cycle without somebody who opens the gate on uh, our behalf. There is a very important element of the gospel that we are saved from our sin, that we cannot save ourselves. Yeah, That is a critical core component of a Christian's self-identity and confession. But it's also a bit more comprehensive than that, isn't it? I mean, for example, the New Testament language around being saved, so Zane. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you've done research on this. Yeah. Um, is it just about believing and going to heaven?
1: Well, let's go back to Judges and then we'll jump into to salvation. Um, I, about 10 years ago, I was teaching at Seattle Pacific University, and um, uh, the university does these kind of community Bible studies that could be part of my load. And they said, Would you be willing to teach one of these? I said, Sure and they just gave me the course Joshua Judges. I'd never studied these books before uh, in, in any kind of formal way. And uh it was really difficult. Uh like I remember a colleague saying, "Oh my gosh, once you get to the Levites concubine." I was like, "Oh, okay. I didn't know what it was that what that was all about." I was like, "Okay, whatever." And then uh, when I get into it, I realized this is this horrific text. But um but I, I actually came to love Joshua and Judges because it kind of foreshadows so well the need for uh, the gospel, the need for a savior. And so you're talking about judges, and I love teaching about judges, even when I teach the New Testament, because you have this dark cycle where God says, you know, okay, you better behave this time. And then Israel says, yeah, yeah, of course, whatever. And then, you know, God sends a deliverer, and then they sin again, and then they get back in the cycle. But there are two refrains that repeat throughout the book. One is, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Mm -hmm. No one did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That kind of goes together. But the second one is, there was not yet a king in Israel.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that is the author's way of hinting at the solution. Yeah, In fact, it's looking forward to David. And David was a flawed person, and David didn't make it this perfect kingdom. But uh, I talk about the rise of the messianic figure in the Second Temple Judaism period as the Davidization, in quotes, of the hopes of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Messiah is the Davidization uh, of the hopes of Israel. And so, um, so that starts to give you an indicator of where the Bible's taking the gospel, or foreshadowing the gospel, it's not about floating up into heaven. Uh, I, when I, you know, I, I was I was a good uh, child of Ohio, and and in a high school, I would um, our church would do door to door evangelism. Yep. Uh, which might sound strange if you're from places like uh, Oregon or California, <laughs> but this was extremely common, you know, where I where I lived. So we'd knock on the door, knock, knock, knock. Person would come to the door, and we'd say, um, "When you die." How certain are you that you'll go to heaven? You know, give us a percentage. And if they say eighty uh, percent, then we would, you know, say, you know, don't you want to be hundred percent sure? And if they say hundred percent, then we say we're going to go on to the next door. <laughs> if they said you know something low, then we share the gospel, then and so forth. And that reinforces what you're talking about: this minimalistic, dualistic, gnostic gospel of. Fire insurance. I only need it yeah. in emergency. I only need it when I die. Uh, that's that makes very little of the Christian faith. It's hardly even a faith. It's just kind of a piece of uh, laminated paper you keep uh, in your in your wallet. Going to your comment about savior, um, I wrote a book chapter on this recently, and so I want to look at in the Greco Roman world how would they have used the language of saving and savior in ways that the early Christians are picking up on this to talk about Jesus. And what's really interesting is some of the most common uses of the word savior are military leaders. Hmm. Uh, They're saviors for a couple of reasons. Um, uh, They are fighting off warring armies. They're protecting the people. They're conquering other lands. So they're spreading kind of that nation's uh, ways. But but another way of talking about savior, uh, uh, maybe a synonym, would be guardian. Hmm. So even some translations will hail Caesar as savior and protector. Um, and so there's this sense it's not a one-time thing when uh, Roman uh, citizens referred to Augustus yep. as savior. Yep or Julius Caesar as savior, uh, it's actually about who they are and what their role is as emperor. Mm. Uh, now, we look at that, we think it's propaganda, we think it's you know uh, a, a false uh, picture of what the empire does. But the Christians picked up on this and they said, um, to call Jesus savior means he protects us. He looks after us, he guards us, he's there for us. I want to give you an illustration that I came across. I think captures really, really well this idea of 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 the gospel and and, and of God as savior. I read the story that happened not too long ago about a group of kids, uh, I think in the Pacific Islands. Uh they I think they were maybe like young teenagers, and they decided to run away from home and they were gonna to go to this island that they knew of. And so four or five, six kids. And so they steal a boat. They steal like a fishing boat. And they take food with them, but they forget to take a map or a compass. Mm. So they just wander until they crash on this deserted island, kind of, well, the kind of thing you see in movies. They're on this deserted island. They're stuck there for a year and a half. No provisions, no food uh the news article said they were drinking uh they didn't have fresh water so they would drink birds blood mm delicious a uh, one kid fell off a cliff broke his leg so they had to make uh make a, a crutch for him well uh, a a commercial a commercial fisherman uh is a very wealthy man is is passing by in his boat he sees these children he goes there and he picks them up he rescues them and really our gospel story the minimalist gospel really ends there right where you just deliver them back and every and then you're done. Mm. But with this story is different because this man um when he drops the kids off back on their home island uh the and uh, they radio ahead to say these kids are coming home, right? The parents mm. are happy. Mm. But guess who's there? The police. Mm. Why? Because they stole a boat. So they're about to be arrested. Guess who bails them out? The commercial fisherman. He pays mm. for their release. So what he does is he makes some deal with the guy who, who sued and uh, gets them free. Then after that, he, hire, he offers to hire those kids to work on his boat. And not all of them say yes, but a few of them do, and a few of them become very close to him. And when I think about what the gospel and what the salvation that Jesus offers really means according to scripture, it's something like that where you don't just say, I'm going to rescue you and plop you down on this island, back on your home. It doesn't you know it's not like, okay, I'll try to talk to the jailer uh it's that sense of i'm gonna see you through to the very end, yeah right of of your needs, I'm gonna be there for you because of my compassion and I'm gonna forge a relationship with you and then you know after uh, you know after these people had grown up, they interviewed the kids and and a couple of them became very close to the man, they said he became like a parent to us or like an uncle. That's beautiful. It's an amazing story because I feel like that does such a better job of capturing the nature of salvation than just yeah. the person rescued from an island.
0: Well, well, even Joel Joel Green wrote a book on salvation a number of years ago, uh, kind of a little handbook, kind of a, a broad picture of, of the New Testament concept of salvation. Yeah. And he he talks about, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but he, he talks about even the um the this the the New Testament word for save, Sozane, is almost the, the it is often almost if not the majority of the time, a reference to physical healing. Yeah. That, that the majority of the use of salvation is of the physical dimension of the the body, right? You have the blind who are receiving sight, you have uh, the leper who is healed. Yes. And there's a physicality to the salvation. I remember an article Miroslav Wolf wrote a number of years ago called The Physicality of Salvation or The Physical Dimension of Salvation. That, to me, goes so against this fire, uh, th- this sort of fire insurance gospel that mm-hmm. says we are, we are, uh, because be, that fire insurance gospel really does give us a theological framework to treat this earth and our bodies and our emotions and our lives like garbage, yeah. because we're just We're plopping ourselves out of here into some other dimension. When Christ's work in the New Testament, yes, it's to save us from sin. Yes, it's to save us from the power of the demonic and the
1: serpent that seek to kill and destroy and steal.
0: But Christ's work has a physical component of salvation.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And in fact, a good translation of save in those healing passages is something like restore. Yeah. Restore is a a pretty good um, equivalent to what that meaning is as we translate it into English. And so um, I think that captures well uh, kind of an allegory of what the gospel does for our whole lives, which is physical, social, emotional, spiritual, psychological. It's not going to prevent you from needing a doctor. It's not going to prevent you from needing a psychologist or a physical uh, or a spiritual director, but... It is that comprehensive sense of restoration, renewal, yeah. rejuvenation, new life. Uh, you, you had me thinking about the way this is talked about by one of my favorite uh, biblical scholars, Luke Timothy Johnson. He wrote a really powerful book that I have my students read sometimes called Prophetic Jesus, Prophetic Church, about the ministry of Jesus in Luke Acts. And Johnson spends some time in that book talking about Jesus' healing ministry. And Johnson says, when we look at Luke, the gospel of Luke, uh, when we look at the gospels in general, we think that Jesus's healing is all about just making someone's physical body the way it was Mm. before. Mm. But he says there's so much more to it when you pay careful attention to what Jesus does with and for people when he heals them. And I'm going to try to remember all three of his points. One is he sees the hurting. So just seeing people, looking them in the eye taking seriously their suffering in humanity. He says the second thing is touching. Mm. He says, um, you know, this happened with the AIDS epidemic where people are afraid to touch people with AIDS, Mm. Mm. right? Even if you knew that it wasn't contagious just by touch, uh, as opposed to COVID, which is a little more (laughs) dangerous. But with certain things, there's that sense of uh, pariah where we won't touch someone. So just the fact of Jesus touching people, Johnson says, is a part of his saving ministry, that physical touch is such an important part. Wow! And when it comes to touching and seeing, he says, like, take, for example, the elderly, like shut-ins. We just say to them, hey, watch online, watch on TV. Um, and we don't really think about the importance of seeing them and touching them. Yep. And how much touch is an important part of of community and knowing someone. And then the third thing that Johnson talks about in Jesus's healing ministry is bringing into the midst. Mm. Um, so he talks about how when Jesus heals a leper, he's not just healing him from physical ailment, even though he's doing that. He's also enabling him to participate in a community, not on the margins or the fringe, but at the center. Yep. And um, how powerful that is. I remember, uh, you know, I was going through a hard time when I was teaching a particular context and, you know, I'm a professor, I'm the boss, I'm in charge. But I remember this moment where a group of students said, uh, can we just surround you and pray for you and and lay hands on you and pray for you? And it's not a normal thing that happens in an academic classroom. For students
0: to pray for a professor. Yeah. Yeah. To lay hands
1: on, you know. But they did, and I tell you what—it's one of the most memorable and most touching moments of my life, is to have um, students that I'm supposed to serve uh, stand around me, touch me on the head, the neck, the shoulders, the back, and, and pray for me, and, and pray blessing and, and, and care. Um, and, and in those moments, you're reminded that Jesus's ministry was holistic; it wasn't just getting souls into heaven it wasn't just um fire insurance yeah just it
0: that is an important co- part of it yeah. but it's not just
1: yeah. that yeah no i you know i mean why wouldn't we just have deathbed confessions for everybody if it was just that yeah but this idea that um jesus helps me now um, through uh through the spirit but also through other people uh is a crucial part of why um i'm still a christian uh is is the people that minister to me and yeah. how Jesus ministers to me through people that touch me uh put me in the middle uh of the community when I need to be and see and see who I am
0: man this whole idea changes the way i read the bible i had a student uh say to me uh i get asked this almost every year when we read the pauline letters uh, that that pesky line where paul says um, for women, uh, that they will be saved through childbearing. Yeah, yeah. We interpret that to mean you get saved when you have people read that and go, well, you, you know, you get saved. You're saved when you have kids. And of course, Paul's not saying that he's talking to women at a moment in history where like half the women were dying in childbirth because it was a very dangerous time to have kids. Yeah. He's not saying you're going to go to heaven. He's saying, God is with you. You'll be restored through this. Yeah, God is present to you. Don't be afraid. God is with you. That reframes the whole conversation. So could it actually mean that when you and I are sitting in our spiritual director office, or when we are doing work to actually mend our emotions and learn about ourselves, and we're doing the work of becoming emotionally healthy and centered human beings, that is a part of the work of Christ for the Christian? Emotional healing? Things like caring for our mental health is an adequate—that is—that is—, that is we get to put that in our salvation bucket as part of being saved, that God is trying to knit together just as he did in our mother's womb once again, put us together into our right uh, mind now. Isn't that part of being saved? I wonder if that's why a lot of young people run away from the kind of fire insurance gospel uh, because it is becomes a way to not have to deal With emotional health, or a way to not have to deal uh, with naming sin in this world, or a a whole variety of things. And so, I don't know, is it fair for us to say that part of being saved is things like emotional health, and mental health, and physical well-being? Does that matter?
1: Yeah. I mean, think about, um, you know, I remember Tom Wright talking about the Uh, The famous comma in the Apostles' Creed where it says, born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And Wright says, and that comma has contained the entire story of Jesus in the Gospels. Mm. That comma contains a lot of information. Yeah, his whole life. Uh, Yeah, his whole life. And uh, it matters that our New Testament begins with all this information about Jesus before he dies on a cross. Yeah. And if we just read Paul, for example, we're going to miss a lot of that. Now, I think Paul has a lot to say about holistic salvation, so don't hear me say that that Paul ignores that. But Paul's been accused of focusing on the quote unquote Christ event, which means the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. But there's a reason that the gospels begin, or that the New Testament begins with the gospels, and have these long stories of Jesus spending time with people. So right now. My family, uh, were slowly watching through the TV show, The Chosen. I don't know if mm, you watch watched that. I've heard wonderful things, yeah. And it's just so fun to imagine. What the show does is it imagines just real stories and real life and real context for Jesus' life. And so we just watched an episode. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm spoiling the story of Jesus for you, AJ. But we just watched an episode of Jesus going to the wedding at Cana and how confused in the story, uh, The Chosen, his disciples are that he just launched this ministry. He's recruited people and then they go to a wedding. Mm. And I think The Chosen is playing off this idea that uh, celebration (laughs) and wine and partying are all a part of the joy of, of the life of Jesus. Yeah. Um, Yeah, And it's not this distraction. I used to have this attitude that, quote-unquote mundane things in life are unspiritual. Huh. I lived that lie for years, and I felt guilty listening to secular music or going to a movie or whatever, thinking that I was choosing um something bad for me versus going to church or mm-hmm. singing spiritual mm-hmm. songs. Uh, but But as I've gotten older and I've learned more about who Jesus is, it actually expands the beauty of the gospel to see... God's handiwork in a beautiful soccer game a uh, a great cup of coffee yeah yep. uh you and I both love a good latte a good uh, a good cup of coffee, and I teach my students to just uh uh when you take that sip of good coffee I know mike bird if you're listening you hate coffee so uh cup <laughs> a cup of, of co- coca cola or something uh just to to see god's grace yeah yeah in coffee yeah. Um, I, you know, my kids joke that my big uh obsession right now is Topo Chico, mm, which is fancy bottled, drinking yes. water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And I tell you what, I savor it because there was a time in my life where I couldn't afford Topo Chico. Yep. And now I have a little bit, uh little bit more money to be, or maybe I just justify it. But yeah, uh, you know, I I feel like God has brought me to a place where I just really enjoy. God's grace in little things in a way I never before, because I've been freed from the lie that he only saves for an otherworldly kind of existence.
0: Yeah, that's right. So mango is good and God gave us taste buds and there's a reason it tastes good. And there's a reason we can taste. Uh, the point isn't that we would just be born into heaven, uh, or some ethereal ether into, you know, the, 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 the fourth dimension in the sky or something like that. Um, we were invited, as Christ was, to actually live a life, to live a comma, to be here for a period of time and to experience and live and enjoy and experience the fullness of human life. That's the incarnation. We're invited to the same thing. And, you know, is there, maybe Nije, I want to be cautious here, the good evangelical me wants to say, but that doesn't mean the gospel is everything, because it's not. There are boundaries to the gospel yeah Paul spends a majority of his letters arguing against false gospels and right, false images right. um, we're not saying that the gospel is everything no we are saying the gospel is way bigger than we've ever made it or we've ever imagined it it's more comprehensive than we've ever uh, we've ever dreamed and that is beyond good news that's terrific news um, for any of us who were taught the purpose of life was to die and just float up to heaven yeah we get to go to weddings yeah, We get to go to week-long weddings and uh, see 120 to 180 gallons of water get turned into gushing wine right. and celebrate. Um, yeah, Isn't it awesome? We say John 2, that story of the woman at the well, or the story of the Cana miracle is the first miracle. I don't think that's the first miracle. It is the first sign, but I don't think it's the first miracle. I think the first miracle... Uh, is that uh, Jesus is the kind of God you want at your wedding. And (laughs) that he says yes, and he enjoys showing up. Like, what a remarkable feat that we have a God who not only uh, shows up, but a God who you'd want at your wedding. Yeah, he's the kind of guy we want at our wedding. (laughs) Because every time he shows up, he turns water into wine. He's a great, great guy. Yeah,
1: And he cares. I mean, the whole point of that story is he cares. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Good conversation. Okay, well, the gospel basically... Is awesome. That's what we're saying, <laughs> and it's the only way. It's good news. Is it must be good. It must be news. And for the person walking through um, struggles in their faith, man, there's good news today. It's good and it's news, uh, and it's bigger than you ever ever imagined. Good
1: conversation, DJ. Yeah, the gospel is good and news always.